Thanks to Crymalt, this is Beer is a Conversation. I'm Matt Kirkegaard. This week, we have another bumper show. Uh, we spoke with Brennan Varis a few weeks ago to celebrate 10 years of Hop Hog, and in a way, we continue along the same theme this week. 10 years ago, a little venue called the Local Tap House opened and quickly became a benchmark for what a great beer bar should be. Over the last 10 years, founders Steve Jeffers and Guy Greenstone have continued to evolve and innovate and in the hottest 100 and Gabs have created some of the biggest things on the craft beer calendar. They've also had a few misses and over the next 90 minutes, you'll hear them discuss their successes and failures with great insight and honesty. We've split the interview into three parts that break up nicely into three half-hour segments, looking at the local tap house, Gabs, and more recently, Stomping Ground. In this first episode, we look at how they discovered beer and what inspired their interest, how they met, the inspiration for the local tap house, and what they've learned and continue to learn along the way. Enjoy the conversation. Steve Jeffers, Guy Greenstead, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Welcome for a very long overdue conversation. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. It's nice to be here this time of year. Usually it's just around the hottest 100 we get to have a chat, Matt. Well, and, and that's a big thing. It's because we actually missed a very major milestone for the local tap house, which uh, turned 10 this year, which I guess in a lot of ways doesn't sound like very old. I mean, it's, but in, we're talking about craft beer here, so I think almost dog years comes in in terms of the cycle and everything that's happened um, and you know we, we've seen so much change and so we're very overdue to chat about what you guys have been up to but then also just mark a couple of milestones that have been very important. Um, so look we have chatted in the past but I guess the first question I want to go back and look at is how did you guys meet? Sure good good uh, question it was it feels like an eternity ago I feel like I've known uh, Steve forever but um uh, Steve used to have a, a bar um, that was my favourite bar that I used to come and drink at called um, the St Kilda Local and it's um, exactly where we're sitting here but um, next door because we've since gone next door and um, he and I just became good mates and uh, I was always talking about beer and I was working for Lion at the time. Um, I was a, a rep for them down here um, and I'd fallen in love with all these fantastic beers um, and Steve um, had a, a bar and, and was always trying to put um, more beers on, um, whether it was Cooper's back in the day um, or uh, some of the Matilda babies that had been coming on. And, um, and uh, we just became mates. And then, um, and, uh, and then one day uh, Steve turned around to me and said, hey, uh, I've got this idea. And are you interested? And it's about uh, creating a, a specialty beer venue that uh that did beer in a way that had never really been done in australia before and was i interested and uh i said absolutely am i interested i'd love to do it and uh and then we went and set about trying to find a venue which we which we did in in richmond of all places so just before we jump uh beyond that what led you steve to think craft beer is where it's at because we're stepping back to anyone that's uh discovered craft beer and is deep into their neepers and brewed ipas and things now Ten years ago, there wasn't a lot of choice um, for craft beer. We had Mountain Goat, we had Little Creatures, but there wasn't a lot on. And there certainly weren't very many dedicated 
craft beer bars. What led you to think that craft beer was going to be something that was worth going large in? Listen, Guy will groan when I say this, but it it it, it only happened because I was uh, having to work in work in film and television in Los Angeles back in two thousand. And I was a mainstream beer drinker then. I drank, you know, for the brand, what was in my hand. And um, by sheer serendipity, um, the landlady that I lived with in Los Angeles had a friend who was a bartender at a bar called The Father's Office, which is a, probably a pioneering beer bar in LA, in Santa Monica. And they had 36 beers on tap. And I happened to go in there one day with with her and him. And uh, they would give me little tasters. And these are beers I'd never heard of. And I didn't know it then, but that was obviously the moment. So what happened is I then came back to Australia, opened what was then the St Kilda Local, um, and we had Carlton Draft, Coopers, and a few other mainstream beers on tap. Um, but I, after about a year, I s- built a, a separate font that allowed me to indulge my growing interest in craft beer, and I would just go to... So were you a contracted venue at that stage? I was, or, yeah. yeah. I was a contracted venue with CUB, and uh, but when I had the opportunity, I... Hold on, so yep. you were CUB and you were lying. Yeah, and so that was part of my mission. I was trying to... Um, so, so um, first of all, let me just say that that was... We're talking 2001, 2002, 2003, long before we actually ended up yep. going into business together. So um, after that, I actually left and I was working for a finance company. But I'd fallen in love with all the small beers that were being produced out of... Um, uh, out of the malt shovel brewery, so um, the first IPA I ever tasted, believe it or not, was a malt shovel IPA. Lovely. And, yeah, and uh, and and their porter, which I which I loved, and uh, increasingly I was less motivated by the big brands and only really interested in the small brands. And I'd had my own um, craft beer epiphany, for want of a better term, um, in Canada when a mate of mine went on a snowboarding trip introduced me to these things called micro brews, and he said, and they all had all this flavour. So. Um, Steve and I would uh, chat about these things and I was, you know, very, um, I, he had a contract so I couldn't really get my beers there but we were always talking about beer so he knew I had this um, interest in it and and to be fair, he, like what's happened to a lot of people these days, they just, he couldn't wait to get out of the contract to, to start indulging his uh, growing interest in, you know, in, in, in all that was out there. Stepping back to, to you Steve, so you were a, a Carlton venue? Yeah, Carlton Venue, only because they get they offered me $15,000 um, way back then, which was, for me, I think I opened the venue and spent $100,000 on opening the venue. So 15000 was very helpful to me. Um, I can't remember if it was 100%. I don't, know if it, I don't think it was because I had Coopers on from the early days. But when I got this special font, that was really when I started to really indulge and, and do a bit of homework about what was available there. And these are the days when I would get... Red Hill beers or, or, or um, Mountain Goat, uh, Hargraves Hill, like local Victorian mostly microbreweries and um, I would just get a keg or two and that's what where I kind of, it accelerated my interest and um, that's where I started hatching this idea of, of opening a, a world-class was what I would say to Guy is I want to open a world-class beer bar. There was the Royston in those days, that was probably the benchmark in in Melbourne, that was a great, it was and is a, a great little bar. Um, and then I kind of set about this plan of 20 taps and I actually went to Europe and America for about six weeks and uh, saw dozens and dozens of what I could f- research as being the best beer venues in, in the world. In, and uh, I went in and I had this book, I had this little notebook, not dissimilar to what you've got there and I would, I still have it. And I, had a, I put a line down the middle of the page and I would go into every bar and I would, have one beer that I hadn't had before and I would write, what are the things I like about this bar? What does it make me feel? Why? And, 
and what are the things I don't like about the bar. And then I came back and we hatched this plan for what would become the local tap house. And um, so that's, yeah, 10 years, well, it was probably going back probably 11 years or so that I spoke to uh, a guy and then we opened in May 2007. Uh, fe- February 2008. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but closed the doors in, in probably May, it was May. May 2007 and, and we're really already working on it from... You yeah, know, as Guy said, we bought, we bought another business in Richmond and then only to find out that the, uh, the, the guy who sold it to us was a bit of a shark and he'd sold it to someone else as well. And we, we got very despondent about... Oh, we, we were ready to go and off and running and then this fell over and then I had an idea that we, and I said it to Guy, well, listen, St Kilda's a great suburb to do it in. Why don't we go up on the St Kilda? So cut a long story short, we pitched it to the landlord. He agreed to pay for it and we paid rent and, and we basically knocked this building you're in right now to the dirt uh, except for the front facade and then we built uh, two storeys and created the tap house which was very much inspired by... The European taverns that, and because I'd spent most of my twenties living in Dublin, and uh, I just really loved the character of these places that were very broadly appealing, but they just had so much a character and and um, patina, and and I really loved that. So that was kind of the inspiration for it. We had twenty taps of different beers. The v- in the very first week, we had Carlton Draft on tap at the local tap house. There's a a bit of trivia there, and because w- I was so nervous about losing the patrons that we'd had, I'd had for seven years at the old bar. And I think within two weeks we decided, no, let's put it maybe I think in bottles. In, no, we put it in – we took it off upstairs and it was only downstairs or vice versa. And then um, within three or four weeks we said, let's get rid of it. Because it, often if you have these sort of beers on, people will gravitate towards them. And we kind of backed ourselves to be able to sell people onto what those days was probably a James Squire beer. And, um, and we went from there. I'm looking around because you did model it on the European – brasserie or the that sort of and it's got that vaguely french vaguely belgian not quite faux um irish you know it's just got that european feel about it all of the beer venues that have opened up since then have pretty much gone for that industrial dive bar so you you really created something that was new that no one else has followed but it still has an amazing feel to it if you opened today 10 years later would you still go for that same feel or would you have follow the way that other venues have gone and gone that. That's a good, that's a good question. Certainly, mine. I love uh, patina. I guess I love I love character, and so I wouldn't. I, I would never be drawn to opening something that had had was ultra clean and and um, and uh, new. I'd always want some. And, and the stomping ground. The stomping ground is a good example. Is that that's very different from this. There's a lot of character in that venue. It's a different suburb though as well. But there, there's something about this that. It doesn't feel new, but it, at the same time, it doesn't feel like a dive bar. Like you, you've oh, gone definitely for that. we didn't want. We wanted to be broadly appealing, and one of the the best compliments that we would get when we first opened was when people walked up the stairs or into the building, and they would look around and they would say, "Well, how long has this been here for?" Like, and that was that's the best compliment because you can see it done badly. This kind of uh, uh, aged Irish faux look. That was that would have been the worst uh, comment that anyone could have said. But the fact that people literally thought. Wow, I never knew this place existed. It's obviously been here for, you know, hundred dozens of years, and, and it clearly hadn't. We'd built it using old materials where we could, and getting. It's the first time I've realised that you built this place from a facade. Well, so where we're sitting in now is an extension. I think, as Guy said, is that I think four years after we opened the local tap house, as it originally was, is the landlord uh, bought the neighbouring uh, shop, 
and uh, we decided that we would extend the local tap house. So we knocked that one to the ground, built two stories again, and uh, we joined into next door and both upper uh, on the first and ground floor where we could. So it became a bit of a rabbit warren. Um, but that this where we're sitting now happened four years after or thereabouts after we opened the main local tap house. But going back to the question, would you open if you're doing it again today, ten years down the track, would you open the same venue now? A, cu- a couple of things on that. First of all, um, one of the things. So um, a lo- as as Steve sort of alluded to, a lot of the vision came out of Steve's research trip and and what came out of his head. But the the beauty of it was and 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 remains and. And it's still a central theme with everything that we do is to go for something really classic, um, classic and almost ageless. So if you if you've got a something that's eighty years old, for example, um, and then five years down the track, it still looks eighty years old. Um, something extremely contemporary uh, ages pretty quickly. And we uh, both and all of us, in fact, in, in in the group now, absolutely love that sort of aged aesthetic. Um, so I think we would certainly. Um, go for a similar look, but... But at the same time, just, yeah. just before we move on, but at the same time, if a certain age or a certain period is very... Um, in vogue. In vogue, mm-hmm. that passes just as quickly a- anyway. So you, you, you found something that's timeless, and 10 years later, it, it still feels timeless. So you know, there was something about the, the what you chose that wasn't... that touched on what you wanted to but wasn't of a precise period well we wanted people like i was saying when i went overseas i would write down what what i felt about a place as much as what i saw and that's really what we wanted to to be able to create it was a place that made people feel comfortable at home a place where they could bring their daughter or their mother or their grandmother and that's still one of uh, the great things even now 10 or 11 years on is to walk into this place on a busy Friday, Saturday, Sunday and see just the variety of people that we attract here. But it's also the little things, um, Matt, because uh, things like, you know, hooks under bars, um, things that uh, make you feel a little bit more comfortable, low lighting, um, barriers to um, discussion removed from between bartender and, and customer. But those hooks under the bars, even that, like it, it, Steve talks about um, the um, patina, um, and it, it's almost there's there's just a, a, what I talk about as resonance. People probably don't even clue to that, but there's something that's very um, w- with beers. When you go in, you, you buy your schooner of beer or your pint of beer with beer washing on the side. You put it on the bench, and suddenly the bar is. So if you've got a nice handbag, um, which I don't, um, but you know, um, <laughs> man bag, man. Uh, well, no, but, but, but nothing wrong with that. Probably. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, it's a satchel, not a not a purse. Um, but you know, for for women who come in, there's somewhere for them to hang their handbag, which there's nothing overt about it. But there is just something also very inclusive about it. There's just one of those below the line or just things that people probably don't even recognise, but it just makes people feel comfortable. Yeah, well, I think um, so. It's central to everything that we're all about, um, right across, I, I guess, the the business now is is a real um, want to be inclusive rather than exclusive, and you know that manifests in not only the design but also the approach that we have to um, to beers. We we really want to be appealing uh, to a really broad um, cross section of community, and that's it's just about togetherness and community, and these things that are things that really are important to, to uh, Steve and I and Justin. And uh, as a result, um, 
you know, it, it sort of manifests in the design, also in our approach to, to the menu, to our approach to um, the various spaces that we have. We events, really, events, events that we do. as well. It's really important for us to bring everyone along for the ride. And uh, obviously you can't be everything to all people, um, but it's really important for us to, to really have that sense of inclusion. So it doesn't matter if you've come straight from work and you're in a suit or whether you're a tradie that's worked down the road that wants to come here for a knockoff or you're if, coming... Even if you're on your own, that's... Coming on. And that, that, was, that was always our measure of success if people felt that they could come here on their own and strike up a conversation with a bartender or another patron um, and feel like they were part of the, you know, the local tap house family was a really important thing to us. And, and hopefully we've achieved that. We get um, uh, you know, amazing feedback, people saying they really feel like they've come somewhere that they feel like they belong to. And I mean, Cicerone these days is a big thing and you guys put your staff through and one of your staff was the first master Cicerone. Advanced Cicerone. Advanced Cicerone in the uh, Southern Hemisphere. Um, but even in the days before Cicerone, uh, I know that you used to sit down and train your staff and you had a piece of paper and you would get them to describe any beer that you had on tap in their own words and how would you describe it and you know, get them to summarise it so they were practised at getting people to come in. And, and that was very forward thinking um, at, at that stage. So, so that's an interesting one, Matt. Sorry, um, Steve, I'm going to jump in because it, when I was working with Lion, that was probably the favourite part of my job is um, sitting down with bar staff and having a chat about beer and, and um, doing some beer education. And Steve um, shared the same sort of uh, philosophy as me that educated staff are engaged and, um, and really love what they, they do. And we get that point across to the consumers and um, and really kind of elevate the whole experience through that education piece and I remember in the early days putting that course together um, and I would sit down with every single bar staff that started with us tell them what we stood for and take them through a tasting paddle and we would talk about everything from malt hops yeast and the various styles of beer and I really got a kick out of it I I, I wish I could do more of it now Um, it's obviously become um, too much for me to do, um, and, and I still really enjoy doing it with, um, with other people um, externally. But um, yeah, that's what we used to do with every single person. And education has always been a massive part of what we do, not only education of our staff, but also education of the greater public um, and, and consumers um, elevating their experience, I guess. There were very few people, uh, if any, that I can recall, who when I said, let's, Guy and I were going to put in 20 taps they, of different beers. There wasn't anyone who really said that's going to work. There had been some venues around that had similar number of taps of different beers and uh, hadn't worked. And I really strongly felt that it wasn't what you sold, it was how you sold it. And that was not just the staff training, it was the way we presented the menu, the printed menu, the menu board, everything. I just felt that um, there was enough of a niche in the market, even way back then, that people would enjoy coming to a, a, a nice place like this and then uh, they would be open to trying new beers if they were in the mood. If they wouldn't, then they could have something, whatever they wanted, something easy drinking. But there were so many people, and that even to this day I get such a kick out of, whether it's here or at Stomping Ground, talking with people who are keen to explore something new. And there's so much focus now on, on innovation and new beers. And I've, I've said to many brewers who I know who who are legends at producing so many prolific beers, is that, does, do they ever kind of think there's so much, too much pressure to come up with something new? Because we have a, I, have, I have a personal philosophy that there's so many beer styles which are traditional that are innovative to the average consumer. So 
Um, when we in those days there wasn't NEPAs and brute IPAs and the like, there were tr mostly traditional styles, and we wanted to showcase the best ones we could get our hands on. Um, but for the average punter, then as now, is porters and milk stouts and and uh, Belgian golden ales are as innovative as belly button fluff IPA. You know what I mean? Funnily enough, I, I made a note when I walked in. Um, I had a look at the bar and. Uh, you know, the old pegboard is gone, um, but you've replicated that on a nice video screen. But on the screen, there's Weinstefana, um, which I think back the very first time I walked in there, there was another German wheat beer that would have been... Franziskana, maybe? Franziskana. Mm -hmm. You've even got Four Pints um, on tap at the moment. But then there's a whole range of beers on that list that weren't even conceived of as styles um, when you started. And that, that's another great indication of how you're sort of keeping touch with where you started but the beer world has changed so dramatically um is it hard to keep up and is it and, and do you find that your clientele is schizophrenic that some people want you to keep pushing 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 and some people just want to stay back where where it all started to put a, a, a line under what you've said in terms of how times have changed when when steve and i first did this we we when we spoke to each other we said what we would love to do is provide a, a range of styles that really represented all the different styles of, as many of the different styles of beer as we possibly could. And our measure of success at the time was if somebody walked into the bar, our bar, and asked for a beer by style rather than by brand, we feel as though we'd been successful. Because at the time, people would say, could I please have a Carlton Draft? Could I please have a VB? Could I please have a Guinness? They would only ever ask for a beer by brand. And... Sure, and whereas the wine industry had already taken that leap and people were asking for a Shiraz or a Cab Sav or whatever the case may be. So we felt that um, if we could change people's habits and get them asking for beer by style, then we really knew we'd made a difference. And it didn't take that long before all of a sudden people were coming in and saying, what have you got by way of a stout or what have you got by way of a, um, a porter even? And, uh, and, and that was a real measure of success for us. So that was um, one kind of uh, milestone that we achieved. And then obviously from then it's been, you know, it's been probably 10 years since and uh, we've had to keep relevant. So. so how important then is it that you curate your menu? Because if someone comes in and says, I want an American pale ale, you can that there's a lot of American pale ales of a whole variety of qualities. How important is it that when they come in and get an American Pale Ale or an IPA or a NEPA or whatever style they choose, that they're given a version that you guys stand behind? We like to support up-and-coming breweries. Uh, in the old days, we used to ask for samples of, of, of beers uh, before we even put them on tap. These days, um, we, we like to showcase, as Guy said, we, we like to showcase a range of styles. We like to showcase a, range, a spectrum of complexity, I guess. Uh, and we like to have a balance between more established brewers and up-and-comers as well. So um, that's how we get the spread. We certainly take risks on brewers. I think generally uh, what we found is um, we, we have our, word, you know, our ear to the ground and we um, usually have a sense of whether the beer is going to be any good in the first place, and we certainly get beers that are better, better than others. But I think uh, for us, it's really important to kind of showcase that spectrum, the flavours, and to, to support up-and-coming brewers. Because while some breweries have taken uh, perhaps admirably the view that, listen, we're only going to showcase local beers or independent beers, we've stuck by this, and I'm, I'm glad we have in this particular bar, is that we just showcase the very best beers that we can get hold of, whether they're independent, whether they're 
foreign. Um, we certainly have seen. Um, we don't get as we don't put as many international beers on, and I think this is a, a measure of the trend. I think generally in the, in the market, and Brendan said this at one of your podcasts, is that I don't know if it's supported by facts, but it certainly feels like. Um, people are not buying as many imported beers anymore because the standard and variety available in Australia is such now that why would you? Unless there, there, are, some, there are some kind of benchmark beers and, and uh, that yep, exception to that rule, but as a general rule, why would I get an IPA from Brooklyn when I can get a bloody great IPA from you know, down the road? 20 taps, that was groundbreaking in the day, but I've also had conversations with you in the intervening years and how many taps is too many? You do see venues that there was for a while an arms race about who had the most taps. Do you need to have a lot of taps or do you need better taps? The immediately I'm thinking it depends on how big you are. If you're at a bar with 80 people in there, then there's, there's a natural kind of fit. Like we, um, 20 felt right then, I think we could... You, we, you need to be going through a keg a week at every single tap, otherwise... It's no good. And, and you need great staff to be able to get behind it. How do you go through uh, a, a keg of 11.5% bread-aged, you know, barrel-aged... Uh, you know, Amazing staff. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. Amazing staff who know their shit and, and are able to excite customers about it. And uh, you have to be smart and you have to be responsible. So we might, um, uh, for an 11% beer, we might turn... Uh, dial down the volume so we'll make it available in 150 mil rather than a 310 mil but staff who can suggest it and can suggest it with a pairing or with a dessert or can uh talk about it and and get people excited from their about own it. experience like we encourage our staff to trial come in you've just started a new shift obviously there might be two or three new beers that they've haven't tried before try it so you can actually when you're speaking to customers you're talking from a level of experience don't den- if you don't like the beer you don't say anything about it but if you, if you enjoy a beer, absolutely, um, ex- if you're excited about it, excite uh, the customers. There are some exceptions, obviously, to what Guy was saying in that uh, if there are very high volume beers, high ABV beers, sometimes they don't last that long. Uh, sometimes we get different size kegs, obviously, when we're getting, if we do get imported beers, they might be in 20 or 30 litre kegs. But certainly, um, it's, it's really, I don't know, we've got through about 450 different beers a year through our taps. That's generally been the, the rule of thumb over the last 10 years. And we've obviously bring back favourites from time to time. But uh, that's a, a lot of beers that we've, uh, we've had on over, over the years. And we certainly get favourites back. But rotator bars don't work for breweries. As a brewery owner now, God, we want to just get fixed taps, obviously, wherever you can. But... I think that uh, there, are, there is a place in the market for rotator bars and, and uh, as a consumer, I certainly like to try new things. So that's why I was saying before, we do get old favourites. There are some familiar beers that you'll, you'll see time and again on our taps, but it's, it's, an, it's an adventure. to Craft beer, for me, well, that was one of the most exciting things always has been that adventure of trying something new, but not at the expense of having some old favourites. Yeah, and, and I was just going to say, like, to, it's a bit cliche, but it, it is a journey. And so to be able to, we've always said, you know, wherever you are on your journey, we'd love to be able to have something for you and, and, um, and, and let you explore. And I think, um, I think we've been able to do that. And I, I think that, um, you know, as, as Steve was saying, that... Uh, that range and breadth is something that really gets us excited and always and always has. And we, we've we always kind of said from the very beginning that we're not beer experts. And I, I would still probably turn around and say we're not beer experts, but we're absolute beer enthusiasts. Um, and nothing gets either of us, I think, um, or, or Justin for that matter, more excited than 
finding a beer for something somebody turns around and says oh i'm not a beer drinker and we go oh really isn't okay. that the most yeah. amazing uh, experience you uh, can have uh, like, and we go wow mm-hmm. i really like that yeah but i don't like beer yeah but, yeah but i do like this and that still that still gives me a kick every time we're experiencing that um we've got a, a, a range of um sour fruit gozers that have that came out last summer that they sold unbelievably well, and we're bringing them back again this summer. The, the watermelon and guava smash have, have come out a little uh, a little while ago, and the response to those is is exactly what you were just talking to them out there. Is that we find so many people say, "I didn't think I liked beer," and my God, I just really enjoy this beer. And we don't get too serious about it, and and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I I personally think that our lack of expert kind of airs and graces if you like is is part of the reason that we've done okay in the market is because we're just really excited about beer and if you want to join us and sit down my god we'll show you some of the beers that we've discovered uh, or let's discover a new beer together and if, if people have that kind of appetite appetite and interest for for new things And that's the end of part one with Steve Jeffers and Guy Greenstone. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. Mm-hmm.